0: It would be nice if I had my Bible, which I didn't have with me. Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to cover verses 22 through chapter 4 and verse 1. And this deals with slaves and masters and how they should relate to each other, particularly Christian slaves and Christian masters. What should be their relationship? Now, in order to understand this, we need to understand that <clears throat> what slavery was like in Bible times. And we need to know a little bit about the history of slavery. You know, slavery has been around for thousands of years. The In the book of Exodus, the Jews were placed in the slavery through force. You know, you remember how they got there uh, in, in the... Uh, Into Egypt. Remember, first of all, Joseph was sold into slavery. Remember that in Genesis? And then uh, his people came and lived in the in Egypt, and they ended up becoming slaves. When God led the Hebrew children out of Egypt through the Exodus and formed them into a nation, he demanded that they do not practice slavery on the basis that they were once slaves and they should remember how they were treated and they were not to practice slavery themselves. Uh, Indentured servitude was another thing. They were allowed to do that. That's where a person would get in trouble uh, financially, couldn't pay his bills, and therefore would sell his services to another person in a sense become their slave or their servant. Uh, But at the end of seven years, he was set free. So there was no such thing as permanent slavery in Israel. But our passage in Colossians is not dealing with Jews. It's not dealing with that kind of slavery that was taking place in Egypt. Rather, it's dealing with Gentiles. Gentiles who are living in the Roman Empire. Okay, so don't you can't impose the Jewish kind of slavery on the passage. Okay, it's dealing with Gentiles uh, who are living in the first century... In the Roman Empire, in the city of Colossae. And what you need to realize is that 30% of the entire population of the Roman Empire were slaves. That's 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. It was the backbone of the economic system. So, very similar to pre-war uh, slavery in the South, where it was the backbone of the entire uh, Civilization here in the south. So Rome depended on slaves, free labor basically. And there were four ways that a person could become a slave in the first century. One is through the act of war. Rome would go in, uh, conquer a country, take prisoners of war, captives, and then they didn't put them in prison camps. They didn't want to waste that kind of money. And they didn't want to kill them, that sort of seemed inhumane, so they would take their prisoners and they would sell them to other people as slaves. So that was one way, through war. Once it was known that slavery seemed to be a thriving business, then the pirates got involved in it. And you could become a slave through piracy. A pirate ship would come up to your land, Uh, a group of pirates would get on the shore, capture 10 or 12 people, put them on the pirate ship, and they'd never be seen again. Or some unscrupulous businessman, knowing that he can make money off of slaves, would one day just walk down a dark alley, have some thugs grab somebody in the dark alley. and Before long, that person was just gone, and they would sell him into slavery. If you saw the movie 12 Years a Slave, that's what happened in that situation. Someone is just captured and sold for money. Another way you could become a slave was through birth. If your parents were slaves and they had you as a child, then you were a slave. So that was another way. And then the indentured servitude. You could sell yourself to somebody else if you owed money and you said, Well, I can't pay this $50,000 bill that I have, but I'll sell myself to you. I'll be your property. And uh, you became that person's slave. So that was the four ways you became a slave. Um, Rome never considered slaves people. They gave them the designation human beings. So there was a difference between a human being in Rome's eyes and a person. And human beings could be bought and sold as property. Okay? And they had no rights. Slaves had absolutely no rights. So there were slaves that were beaten, tortured, just all the kinds of things that you can think of. Now, of course, not everybody treated slaves badly. Some people treated their slaves very well. After all, you had invested money in them, you, why would you want them beaten? You know? uh, some slaves were very well educated. It's not like slavery in the South, pre-Civil War days. Some slaves were very well educated and served as lawyers, doctors, teachers, ran the entire estate of the master, trained his children, gave him legal advice, and all these kinds of things. And so therefore the master really depended upon the slave and did not treat them poorly. Uh, Many times they would give them a budget. You know, if you were running... Portion of a man's enterprise, he'd give you a budget, you know, expense account, and a lot of times these slaves would just, uh, you know, be frugal, and anything that was left over they were allowed to keep. They began to develop a nest egg and eventually could buy themselves out of slavery. So these are the kinds of things you need to realize. But just remember that slaves, in and of themselves, had no rights. Many tried to uh, run away because they were ill treated. And when they ran away, if they got caught, a tattoo or a branding iron mark was put on the forehead. A great big F for fugitive. And that marked you for life. That you were a runaway slave. And if you ever tried to run away again, that F was always there. <laughs> they would be able to pick you up in a moment's notice. You were targeted. So with that background, when the gospel starts spreading throughout the Roman Empire... It's obvious that some slaves, now we're talking about Gentile pagan slaves, and Gentile pagan masters heard the gospel. Some of them embraced the gospel and got saved. Right? Now they are saved master and saved slave. They're part of the same household. The master had been the head of the household, his wife, the children, and then comes the slaves. But suddenly, they're part of something new called the church. Not only are the members of the same household with a hierarchy with the master over the slave, suddenly they've entered into a new relationship as brother and sister in Christ. And they are members of the church. And in some cases, believe it or not, the slave was the elder in the church, or the pastor of the church. Not the master. Think about that. Because in Christ, there's no male or female. No Jew or Greek. No bond or free. No slave or free man. In Christ, you're equal. And guess what? In the church, you're equal. Out in the marketplace, you're not equal. There's still a distinction. In society, there's a distinction. There's a hierarchy. Rome had a stratification system. Down at the bottom of the line were the slaves. But in the church and in the eyes of Christ, equals. Okay, So, Rome had these rules. How does a master treat a slave? These were called household codes. We talked about that last week. In their pagan society, in their stratification system, how did... What were the rights, not what were the rights, what were the duties of slaves? And these were rules that the slaves had to follow. Now Paul writes to a church that has believing masters and slaves in there, and he's going to give rules how they're to relate to each other. And he's not only going to give rules to slaves, he's going to give rules to the masters, which was something unheard of. Because... In Roman society, masters just had unlimited authority to do what they wanted to do, and Paul is going to put a limitation on it. Does that make sense? So if you were with us last week, you understand that. Okay? Now, Paul makes, just want to throw this out as well, just so we can clear this up. Paul makes no attempt to overthrow the system of slavery. Why do you think that's the case? Because he has no power to overthrow slavery. That would be like me living in the South and trying to overthrow slavery. Could I do it as a human being? One person? Couldn't do that. The only person that could do that would be the government. The Senate would be able to do that. This man can't do that. He's just an evangelist, you know? He's powerless. So what he does is he addresses the church situation and says, okay, out in society you're a slave and you're a master. Now let me tell you, give you some rules how... Christian slaves should relate to their masters and how Christian masters should relate to their slaves okay so what he's going to do here is going to address the slaves first and he's going to give a main admonition in verse 22 his main command in verse 22 and then that's going to be followed by several phrases that explain or expand upon the command, how you carry out that command, why you should carry out the command. So let's look at the first main admonition. Look at verse twenty two. My translation says bond servants, but the word is simply slaves. Okay? Slaves obey, look at this, your masters. Do you see that? Slaves obey your masters. The master would be the male of the house. Who is also the husband, also the father, and the master of the slave. That's who you are to obey. Your masters. Okay? Now look at this. Look at this phrase. According to the flesh. According to the flesh. Which means something. It means they also have a master who is not according to the flesh. The fact that he has to tell them to obey the masters according to the flesh means there are other masters that are not according to the flesh. For example, the elders of the church wouldn't be according to the flesh, that would be according to God's kingdom. Jesus Christ is a master. Not according to the flesh, but according to the kingdom. So that's very important that you get that. Obey the your masters according to the flesh. Now look at that phrase that you thought I skipped. In some things. (coughs) Obey your, in some things, no, it doesn't say that. Not when you feel like it. Not when it pleases you. Look. Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Now in the Greek text, our Greek Bible, it only reads, obey in all. And the translators have have had to add the object. So my Bible says, obey in all things. It could mean obey in all circumstances. It could mean obey in all ways. That's a translator's inclusion. But there is a caveat here, because you're not to obey if... The master tells you to do something immoral. Go get that girl for me so I can have a relationship with her. Go do. No, as a Christian slave, you're not to obey in that way. We understand that, right? We don't have to go into all that. If he tells you to do something that's wrong, obey God rather than man. Right? So, there are no exceptions, though. If he tells you to do something that has no, in a sense, moral value, you are to do it. Now look at the modifying phrases. How are you to do it? Verse 22. Not, and he's going to give us therefore a negative explanation of not how to do it. Not with eye service. Or to put it in a positive way, do it without hypocrisy. Don't do it only when someone's looking. Don't obey them when someone's looking, but as soon as they turn away, you just do what you want to do. I call that the Eddie Haskell syndrome. Remember Eddie Haskell? Yes, Mrs. Cleaver. Can I carry that back? Yeah, the little brat. You know how he was. If she was around, he was like the perfect model, but once she turned her back, you know, the old back, you know, that's Eddie Haskell. Don't be like Eddie Haskell, right? So do it. Negatively speaking, not with eye service, as men-pleasers. As men-pleasers. There's someone else you should be pleasing. So, what he's basically saying is do it with integrity. If you're doing it with hypocrisy, only when they're looking, you're not serving the master with integrity. Do it with integrity. And then look at the next thing. Do it wholeheartedly. Look what he said. But in sincerity of heart. We must not only have right actions, we must have right attitudes. Sincerity of heart. Not only should you do it inwardly, I mean outwardly, you should also do it inwardly. And you should do it all the time. Not only when the Master is looking. Now look what he says at the end of verse 22. Fearing God. Why should you do it with integrity? Why should you do it wholeheartedly? Because even when your master's not looking, guess what? Someone else is looking. God's looking. And you should fear God. Remember, Pastor today talked about this very thing. If you judge other people, but you're doing the same thing, you're going to face the judgment, aren't you? You need to fear God. Your behavior should be based on you fearing God. Now, I know there are a lot of people who go by this motto that we should love the sinner and hate the sinner. How many times have you ever heard that? That's about what the pastor was talking about. That's what Romans 2 is talking about. Don't say, I love the sinner, but I hate the sin. Especially if you're doing the same thing. You know what you should be saying? Love the sinner, hate your own sin. Boy, you follow that rule, everything changes. We say, Well, I love love the sinner, but I, I hate her sin. I hate his sin. No, guess what? Love the sinner, hate your sin. Everything works out that way. Then you're not a hypocrite. So here we have this how not to do it, how to do it. Do it with integrity. Do it wholeheartedly. Then he explains it not only negatively and not only positively. He explains it devotionally. Look in verse 23. And whatever you do, do it heartedly, heartedly as to the Lord. Put your whole soul into it. Notice what he says at the end of verse 23. Do it heartedly to the Lord. And he's talking about the Lord Jesus, isn't he? Notice that the Lord has replaced the Master. You see that? You're not working for the Master. Guess who you're really working for? The Lord. In fact, the Greek word for Master and Lord are the same word. The, masters, the Greek word for Master is kurios. The Greek word for Lord is kurios. One is Your master according to the flesh. The Lord according to the flesh. The guy who's your master. But there's another master. One who's over God's kingdom. And that's the Lord. And you are to pour your soul into it because the heavenly master has replaced your earthly master and you're to work for Christ. And if you're to work for Christ, you should give Christ your best. And look what he says right at the end of verse 23. And, so I'll read the whole thing. And whatever you do, and notice it's whatever, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So here again we see that uh, you are to work for the Lord. You're to do it unto the Lord and not for men. Not to get man's well done, but to get God's well done. So notice that even slave work, Some of that work was menial. It was out in the fields. Slave work is a work for the Lord. Think about that. See, we have this false dichotomy, especially in America, between the sacred and the secular. Well, he works a secular job. He's a bus driver. You know, he's an auto mechanic. He's a lawyer. That's secular. And then we have sacred. He's a pastor. That's a missionary. Ridiculous. A slave can even be working for the Lord. All work is sacred. All work is sacred. And we need to realize that. Adam was told to kill the ground. Was he working for the Lord? Farming is working for the Lord. Collecting garbage is working for the Lord. If you're a Christian and you're not doing it unto men... But you're doing it unto the Lord. And your work is the Lord's work. Okay? Now look at the motivation for doing it heartedly unto the Lord. In verse 24. Knowing. Here's why you're to do it. Here's the motivation behind it. Knowing was an absolute certainty of something. Look what it says. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance when you work for the Lord he has an inheritance for you Roman law did not allow a slave to have an inheritance you were a slave you didn't get an inheritance you were the inheritance (laughs) somebody inherited you (laughs) you didn't get an inheritance but guess what we're not only slaves for the Lord we're also children of the Lord we're sons and daughters of the Lord, and therefore He has an inheritance for us. An inheritance is something that comes in the future. An inheritance is based on death, isn't it? Death of the testator. And guess who died for you that you could have the inheritance? Jesus Christ said, I love you this much, and He died for you, and He hung on a cross. And on the basis of His death, and then His resurrection, we have this inheritance. And it's an inheritance that comes in the future at the resurrection. When God sets up his kingdom in the fullness. And so our earthly master may not give us anything, we may never be free, but our heavenly master has an inheritance for us. The scripture says in another place that the Lord's, that that man's servant can be the Lord's free man. We are free in the Lord. And we are not slaves in the sense that these people were slaves. And so, we have this inheritance. So, he gives us a motivation for working heartily in verse 24. And then he gives us a reason. Look what he says. Knowing that from the Lord, verse 24, you'll receive an inheritance, the reward of your inheritance. Look at this. Why will you receive the inheritance? Here it is. Because you serve who? The Lord. You serve the Lord. Messiah. You see that word Christ? It means Messiah. You serve the Lord Messiah. But look at verse 25. Conversely, he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. If you are a hypocrite slave, and only do what your master wants you to do when he's looking and you're not serving the Lord or you're doing bad things that your master says, then guess what? You don't get an inheritance. You are repaid for what you've done. And that means judgment. And it says in verse into verse 25 and there's no partiality. God doesn't play favorites. Now slave owners play favorites. I play favorites all the time with my students. I'll admit it. I am not a fair professor. If I like a student, I'm going to give him a break, aren't I? When it's right on the edge, guess who's going to get the break and who's not going to get the break? The one I like. Because I am am not a good master. I have a double standard. But guess what? He's saying you can't have a double standard. If you're going to be the hypocrite, then you're going to... Face that, and you're going to be facing judgment. There's no double standard with God. He shows no partiality. I might, but he shows no partiality. And he's going to do exactly what's right. So these are the instructions for the slave. Now, in Paul's rules, he gives an instruction for the master. In the Roman household codes, masters were not commanded to do anything. They can do whatever they want. Paul says, oh no, not if you're a Christian. Here's what he says. Masters, look at this, chapter 4 and verse 1. Give your slaves what is just and fair. Oh, we see now that the Christian slave owner had to do something different. Just means right. Do what is right for him. Uh, We saw last week those five virtues. Or two weeks ago, five virtues that every Christian should follow. The slave master should follow those five virtues. He should not get angry. He should be graceful toward these people. Do what is right by him. And then he says, what is not only just, which means right, but also what is fair. Now that word fair means equal. That means square. It's the concept of a square. A square is equal on all sides. That's why we say, gave him a square deal." You know? Didn't give this person a better deal than he gave that person. You get a square deal. See? Get a fair deal. Okay. So, what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, treat them right. Do what's right by them. And be fair with them. Give them a square deal. Don't make promises you can't keep. So on and so forth. Pay them what they need to be paid. See? Treat them not as slaves, basically. Treat them not as slaves, but treat them as more like an employee who works for you. Now, what I want you to remember, because it's so easy to forget, is that this letter that Paul's writing is going to be read out loud in the church, and churches those days only had a dozen or so people, okay? especially a little place like this, but a small congregation. This letter is going to be read out loud. In front of the church. And guess who's going to be there in that meeting? Slaves and masters. Do you think there's any pressure? Psychological pressure put on them to obey what the Apostle Paul has to say? Of course. So what we have is this letter is being read aloud. Now the motivation for treating them fairly and squarely. Look what he says. Knowing. See, there's something that you can know for for certain That you also have a master in heaven. Mr. Slave Owner, you also work for Christ. You wouldn't know how to treat your slaves? Here's a good way to determine how to treat your slaves How does your master, Jesus, treat you? With grace? with forgiveness, with mercy, with love, to the point that he would lay down his own life for you. <laughs> so that's how you are to treat those who are your slaves. So just as the slaves have masters and must work, do all the work as unto Christ, so the masters also have a heavenly master, and they too must work and operate as unto Christ. Christ. Whether you are a slave or you are a master, there is a reckoning day. See? So if you're a slave, or let's put it this way, if you're a laborer or if you're management. If you want to put it in contemporary terms, since in America we don't have slavery, although other places do. Whether you're labor or you management, guess what you're to do? Work as unto the Lord. Treat others as you would treat the Lord. Treat them as the Lord treats you. Don't worry so much about what you're going to get in this lifetime. You may never get what you're worth. I know I don't get what I'm worth. (laughs) I get a lot more than I'm worth. See, you thought I was going to say something. (laughs) But guess what? You have an inheritance. See, in the future, in the resurrection, at the kingdom. So you know what? If you really wanted to distill it down to one sentence, it would be this. Um, Live by the golden rule. Do unto others the same way that you'd want them to do unto you. If you do that and you're a Christian, guess what it does? It totally undermines the entire slave system. At least among Christians, doesn't. Everything changes. Now, why didn't Paul just say to the men, not oh, just release your slaves, have said that, couldn't he? They probably wouldn't have listened to it. But he could have said that. But what he does say, and he says it in front of the church out loud, this will undermine the entire slave system. Now I want to show you one other passage. Okay? Written to the same church, it's a second letter. It's called the Letter of Philemon. Written and probably delivered within a week of this letter. And all you do is turn to the right in your Bible. You're writing in the T books. Immediately, you'll be in the T books. And right after the T books, that's Thessalonians, Timothy, and Titus, you come to the book of Philemon. And here, Paul is writing to a man named Philemon who has a slave named Onesimus. And Philemon is saved, and Onesimus has become saved. And Onesimus. He's either run away or he's been on a mission. He's far away from his master, and Paul tells Philemon to take him back. So look at verse 15 of Philemon, what it says. For perhaps he, that's Onesimus, your slave, departed for a while for this purpose. For this purpose. That you might receive him forever. No longer is what? Oh, look. No longer is a slave, but. More than a slave. A beloved what? Brother. Especially to me and much more to you. Both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would receive me. If I knocked on your door, how would you receive me? The great Apostle Paul. Oh, you'd invite me in tell me this. That's how you'd do it with him. Feed him, clothing, take care of him. But if he's wronged you, and he owes you anything... Just put that to my account. Don't hold him responsible. I'll pay for it. You see what he's doing? Same church. Same church. Delivered maybe a week apart. Charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention that you owe me even your own selves besides. Yes, brother. Let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience. Mr. Philemon. Knowing that you're going to do everything I've just said. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do... Look at this. What? Even more than I've said. Even more. Do more than I've said. See, Paul's writing the masters. He is basically undermining the whole slave system amongst Christians. And as each church embraces... Paul's teaching, slavery, starts fizzling out within the Christian churches. That was the way the Apostle Paul dealt with it. He did not have the power to stop slavery. Empire-wise, he was one man. But he sure could influence its demise within the church. In Christ, there's no slave or free. In the church, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul's household codes. We'll pick up at verse 2 next week. Father, we thank you for this teaching so we can understand what the early church went through as brand new converts, just fresh out of paganism, just out of idolatry, still entrenched in a social institution and as slavery not thinking clearly, not being discipled yet, how they must have been confused. We thank you, Lord, that we have this letter. And these letters, like finally, it shows how Paul dealt with the issue and undermined the entire evil system in Christ's name.